You're listening to audio from Crossroads Community Church, located in Fogelsville, Pennsylvania. If you want to learn more about C3 and what it is about, you can visit us at c3lehigh.com. And now, for today's sermon. Hey, we're continuing our, our series titled Defining Love. One of the points of this series that we've been going through and we'll continue to go through that the next couple of weeks is just talking about how vastly different Christ defines love versus our culture. The way that our culture defines love and the way that Christ defines love are like they, they could not be more polar opposite. Whenever I, I reflect on Christ's definition of love and how he defines it, I, I can't help but come to the word, the biblical word, oneness. And it, it defines the fact that like when you and I are one with Christ, we are therefore able to be one with our spouse. Being one with Christ, it, it takes precedence over everything else. And I remember in my wife and I, it, my wife and I, a part of our, our testimony is that her and I have been dating since uh, high school. We are high school sweethearts. Her and I have been dating since we were 14, 14 and 15. You were 14, I was 15, yeah. Since we were 14 and 15 years old. And I remember like, I, I wanted, I remember noticing the feelings of like, I, I want to be one with Kylie. I want to spend as much time with her as possible. And I remember like, as we're dating, you, you could not separate us. I remember my, my wife, the first Sunday that I saw her, I'm a pastor's kid and I'm standing up on the platform playing my guitar. And I remember this gorgeous creature walking in the back of the sanctuary. And I said, thank you, Jesus. And I remember as we continued to date and got to know one another, just wanting to, wanting to spend as much time, wanting to be one and spend as much time with her as possible. And I remember throughout high school, every, every school dance, every, uh, I mean, my goodness, every youth group event that we could get to, 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 to not only serve the Lord, but be together. I just remember it was like, and every Sunday after, after church, either her going to my house or me going to her house. And, and I remember like there came this point where, where oneness really started to become a desire even more so in my life. And it was it was shortly after um, I had gone to college, and I went to school at the University of Valley Forge over in Phoenixville, Pennsylvania, and she was back in Pittsburgh. And I remember, like, every chance that I, that I got to, to drive the cursed Pennsylvania turnpike, uh, for four and a half to five hours, or if I was really excited and anxious to get home, I could do it under four. And I just, I remember like try and some of my favorite moments was like when I would show up on her doorstep and I would surprise her coming home from college, I'd text her and say, come out, come out and check your, your porch. <laughs> I don't think I'm that great of a prize, but she did. And that's all that matters. And I just remember like going through these different periods of my, my, our, our dating life where I'm like, I, I want to be one with this woman and being separate is like, is killing me. And I remember the reality of me wanting to be with Kylie 24 seven really hit my family hard whenever we, um, we had gone on this vacation. Kylie joined me and my family on our family vacation. I remember we came back after spending a week with my family at the beach and I remember us I remember us coming back and I walked, walked into the house and Kylie had gone to her house and I'm like, wait, something's off here. 
I want to be with her. And I remember like after having different best friends, like I would go on vacation with a best friend and after a week, I love them still to this day, I'm sick of them. Like I'm done, kind of annoying me at this point because I'm starting to figure out your flaws, right? And I remember with Kylie, it was different because we're, we're sitting in the sanctuary, not the sanctuary, the, the kitchen. Now we're sitting in the sanctuary, hey honey. And I remember like I tell my family, hey, is it cool if I go over to Kylie's house and spend time with her family? And I remember my parents did this thing that it's a God-given gift that only parents have, where you can communicate without words. And I remember my parents giving each other the look where they had an entire conversation with their eyes. And I remember they give themselves a look like, is this boy, this boy's for real? And I remember like it made it that much more difficult whenever we ended up, you know, I'm at one college, she's at another back in Pittsburgh. And I just remember saying like, I, I can't wait for the day when oneness occurs and I no longer have to drop her off at home after a date. And I remember thinking to myself, I, I can't wait for the day when I no longer have to drive four and a half hours to see her. I believe that oneness defines the kind of biblical love that we are supposed to have in a Christian marriage. And if you're here today and you're in a state of life where you're single and you're looking to date, I'm hoping that this sermon can equip you with some tools for your tool belt. If you are married, I'm hoping and believing that this sermon is going to challenge you in the right ways. If you come from a background where you've gone through the horrible heartache of a divorce, I want to first tell you that um, the God that I serve is a God of restoration. Come on, somebody. Go ahead and give him praise. That although we recognize that divorce is not God's plan, and anybody who's been through a divorce knows that because they know that pain isn't of God, and the pain that comes from a divorce is very heartbreaking. So I'm sorry for stating the obvious, but just want to acknowledge that. So if you're going through a season of divorce, again, I want to challenge you that God is the God of restoration. He's not done with you yet. Just keep on trusting him. Keep on following his ways. Amen, church? Oneness. It's oneness with Jesus Christ that leads us to oneness with each other in strong marriages. There's no other foundation. There's no other principles. There's no other, you're a good person, I'm a good person. By the way, we're not. <laughs> Amen. We're not naturally good. The only way that we have hopes to become good is if Jesus is the center of our hearts. But oneness is such a beautiful call by God for married couples. The principle of oneness is found in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united with his wife, and they become one flesh. I want to say this, that marriage isn't a human construct. Marriage is God's creation. So if we recognize that God is the creator of all things good, then we have to recognize that obviously his creation is therefore good. And if God is the creator of a marriage, then he knows how to make marriage good. You all are so bright, my goodness. Then he knows how to make marriage good. The Bible says the two become one. That means, and here's the application for us in 2023, when the two becomes one, in marriage, we are to be one with Jesus first and one with our spouse 
emotionally, intellectually, financially, and in every other way a couple is to become one. Even as one part of the body cares for the other parts, for example, the stomach digests food for the body, the brain directs the body for good of the whole, the the hands work for the sake of the body, and so on and so forth, so each spouse, man and woman, in the marriage is to care for one another. Each partner is no longer to see their finances as my money. It is now our money. It is no longer my house. It is our house. There are no longer two entities, two individuals. There is now one entity in one marriage. That means that this oneness takes precedence. Now hear me because I'm going to start going through some things that are what is referred to as, you know, culturally unsound, that are offensive. Thank you, honey. My honey, my my wife said, not you. (laughs) When we talk about the two becoming one, and this is where we differ in culture, where the Bible differs from culture. That means that this oneness in marriage takes precedence over all past, present, and future relationships. Our culture has these different terms, and I get it. You know, the whole Saturdays is for the boys thing and everything else. But our culture has this real problem where we hold friendship on the same level and value as marriage, and it's just not true. When you become one with your wife, your boys, your guys take a back seat. When you become one with your husband, your girls, your crew, their opinions, take a back seat. When you become one, and this is where I'm about to offend some parents here today, you're welcome. I won't even charge you for this. Parents, it says that the children leave their father and mother. That they become one as husband and wife. That means that their relationship now takes precedence over yours as a parent. And that's hard to let go of. I'm not saying it's easy. But that also means that even in terms of like counseling them and offering them wisdom, right? That there's a line there. That when things get so difficult that you shouldn't give them wisdom or advice, you should send them to a Christian counselor. And the reason why I say that is because there comes a point in time where the situation, the difficulty in that marriage and relationship and the questions that they're asking you to answer are no longer appropriate to answer. Why, pastor? Because you're biased. You always will be towards your child. And if you're here today and you're like, I'm not biased, well, now you're a biased liar. (laughs) That escalated quickly. I know, right? There comes a point where it's inappropriate for parents to... Why? Because they were supposed to leave. And by you continuing to counsel them in a biased attitude, you could be the one causing separation in their marriage. They're supposed to be one. And the danger in today's world is that Culture promotes self-reliant, self-independence, and promotes teachings along the lines of achieving independence within marriage as if that's even possible, and it promotes these false messages to such a degree that it's as if that, that, that marriage is just another achievement, that it's not the priority, 
Marriage is just kind of like you had a good job, you got married, you had a couple kids, pawned them off to others to raise in the school system. And then whenever it comes to you parenting them, you just sit back and relax because after all, you're the picture-perfect American family. God called you more than to just kind of sit and maintain a position or a status as a father and a mother. He called you to be one. Called you to be one. And this is where it's going to continue to sting for a moment. There are false messages out there being promoted by the feminist movement. Now, I am all about women's rights and viewing them equally, and I believe that the Bible teaches this, especially with Jesus at the woman at the well. What a culture-shocking moment that was. But I do not believe the messages from that modern-day feminist movement, and quite frankly, their lies that are destroying the American family. The feminist movement continues to try and promote messages that say men and women are the same, and anything that a man can do, a woman can do. And on the flip side of that culture, we have the arrogant, perverse culture, which tends to promote the false message that men are better than women, And therefore, women are simply to be used, cast aside. Their words and opinions do not matter. And allow me to be the first to say that both sides are wrong. There are things that a man can do that a woman cannot. There are things that a woman can do that a man cannot do. It's as if someone created it to be that way. Rather than us being concerned with independence, God created us to be interdependent. I want to say that again. Rather than being concerned about independence, God created us to be interdependent upon one another. There are things that my wife can't can't do that I can do and vice versa. It's supposed to work that way. And we shouldn't carry shame upon us to say, I can't do it all. You can't because you're not God. There seems to be this modern message that says those who seek oneness are trying to oppress the member of the opposite sex within that marriage. And it's simply not true. Oneness and being interdependent is how God designed marriage. You're interdependent upon each other, right? And as you're interdependent on each other, the person that you are most interdependent upon is Christ himself. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, and they became one flesh. So I hope by this point we've kind of discussed what one flesh, what oneness looks like so that we can not only better understand um, oneness, but so that we can start to break oneness down and figure out how do we have that. And one of the coolest things that I just want to throw out there as a bonus in this is like, what's so beautiful is this oneness in Genesis, the two become one flesh, is actually the most beautiful illustration of it is lived out when you have children. They are living, walking examples of how the two became one, and now both your and his DNA live in that child. Is that not just beautiful how God's plan works out? He not only calls us the two to become one, but he's like, this is how it's going to be lived out. Which, by the way, my wife and I have been asked a couple different times if we know the gender of our baby, and I am excited to say that our baby boy will be joining us in August. 
Dane Donald Immel will be here this August, and we're excited to celebrate that with you. I'd like to go through the three keys of oneness that I was taught by a great pastor. This pastor has experienced a successful, fruitful marriage and has proven that these three keys are biblical and stand to be true today. How do we achieve oneness in our marriages and our relationships? Well, three keys to oneness. Number one, I know I've already said it, but I just want to hammer away again. Faith in Jesus. The key to oneness is always faith in Jesus. When we talk about faith and salvation in Jesus, we are absolutely discussing an eternal reality. Often we think of salvation as in like you don't get to experience the benefits until eternity. (laughs) Salvation in Jesus means that he's not only saved us from a very real place called hell, and then we have a very real place to go to in eternity called heaven, but faith in Jesus means that he's influencing and impacting the way that you live, the way that you speak to one another, the way that you think. Faith in Jesus, salvation in Jesus does not wait until eternity. Amen? Amen. Following Jesus means that I'm learning from Jesus how to think better. Because I've come to realize that the way that I naturally think is no bueno. (laughs) We're not going to go down that trail. That he's teaching me in a way to live in a more uplifting, higher way. A way that pursues righteousness, closeness with Jesus, and distance from sin. A way of life that seeks to please Jesus. Following Jesus means that I'm following God's purpose for my life each day. My day is based off of the question, what does God want from me today rather than what do I want, which is a meaningless endeavor. Following Jesus is to be continually at peace and satisfaction as I live in a better way, His way, as I think better, his thoughts as I'm led in a better way by his Holy Spirit to my purpose in life, rather than being led by my way, which is my demise. When you and your spouse are both living for God in this manner, here's what's happening. When you do things God's way, what you're doing is promoting honor up and you're receiving blessing down. It's the way that he designed marriage. When you do it his way, it works. But when you and I don't do it his way, honor is not going up. Dishonor is. And what do you think is coming back down? And it's not God throwing lightning bolts at us. Come on, somebody. It's us having to live with the natural consequences of sin and lower thinking. Why have faith in Jesus? Because faith in Jesus, both you and your spouse need him. We put our faith in Jesus because both of you need him. Why put faith in Jesus? Well, secondly, because faith in Jesus, he's the only one who can meet your relationship needs. We talked about this last week, and I want to touch on it just briefly again because it still stands just to be true week by week by week, day by day, is that you will not find your purpose and satisfaction in another person. Our culture has this stupid term in every love movie that is just sappy and hallmark and everything else, um, where they say, I love you so much, you complete me. 
you complete me. That's, you're going to regret saying that in a minute, Jack. I almost feel bad saying it like this now. It's dumb. <laughs> no other person can complete you. Only Christ can complete you. And what's better than having a half a person and a half person coming together and making one mess is having a whole person and a whole person completed in Jesus coming together knowing who they are. Knowing their life, their destiny, their purpose, their content of their characters defined by Jesus, that is what faith in Jesus looks like. It should be the number one priority in a marriage. If you're dating right now, it should be the number one priority that you're looking for. Where was I? Having faith in Jesus first for a husband and a wife, is so imperative that we are warned by Paul to not be united with someone that isn't united with Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, and for some in the room, you're going to say, this is kind of old school teaching. I call this effective because this still works. Paul warns us in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Let me hit the pause button. There is no misinterpretation here. Sometimes as Christians, we can go, okay, this verse, let's check it out. Let's debate it for an hour in Greek. Let's dissect every word and make sure that it really does mean what it means. This is not one of those verses. Paul says, do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what does righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? Let me put it to you this way. What does the yoke mean? What is that? Because I remember in youth ministry, we asked our kids this. We were like, what does yoked mean? And one dude was like, it means you're really jacked. You're yoked. Close, but not at all. Another person was like, it's like when you crack an egg. Dippy egg. You don't want that yolk going in everything. Close and genius, but no. Paul is talking about an ox. To be yoked, they had that yoke, that brace that went over and joined the two together, kind of like how marriage joins us together. And if you had a, an ox that was unequally yoked, you had one that was stronger on this side and one that was weaker, representing the unbeliever on the other side. And that farmer who's trying to get that plow to go in one direction is setting himself up for failure. Like your crop circles, they're literally going to be circles because you can't go straight. It's frustrating to try and pull along dead weight. 
It's frustrating to get two ox, one that's weaker and immature and one that's mature and thinks higher and better. And they're at constant odds trying to go one way and another. You can't get them to work in unity. And Paul is saying, when you get married to an unbeliever, when you start dating an unbeliever, when you get united and close with somebody who does not have faith in Jesus, you're like this ox becoming yoked together with another one. They are incompatible. They cannot move forward. They cannot agree. They do not have the same values. They do not think the same. They do not feel the same. One is misled. The other is on a path to righteousness. The two are incompatible. And I don't know when in our generation, in my generation, when we stopped thinking that this had, or excuse me, when we started thinking that this biblical teaching had an expiration date. If anything, go ahead and look at the divorce statistics, do a study on them, and I promise you that it will lead you right back here to this verse. That there were two who became one that were unequally yoked. Friend, if you want a healthy marriage, by the way, God wants you to have a healthy marriage. God is pro-marriage. God is pro-happy, joy-filled marriages. If you want that, then do it his way. Fundamental step one, that you both have faith in Jesus, that you're both pursuing, loving Jesus. I want to also say this because when I've taught this verse before, these are the questions that I'm frequently asked. And if you are, in, uh, again, if you are ever asked different Christian principles on dating, which you will be as a follower of Jesus, it's just going to happen eventually, then you're probably going to be asked these questions whenever you tell somebody that Christians should be dating Christians. It's not in a hateful manner. It's in a manner that God knows how marriage works best. It's a loving manner. Questions that I frequently get in light of this scripture. What if I'm already married to an unbeliever? That's a great question. The follow-up question to that is, should I leave them? No. Jesus said what God has joined together, and that's what happens in marriage. It's not the state of Pennsylvania joining a couple, it's God. What God has joined together, let man not separate. Now, again, for those in the room who come from a divorce, God is in the business of restoring. I cannot say that enough. Please do not let this come across as guilt and condemnation and hateful. It's the opposite. It's like God's got something for you. Keep following him. But back to the question at hand, what do I do if I'm already married to an unbeliever? Your job is to be the hands and feet of Jesus to them, to continue to love them, to continue to serve them, to continue to show Christ-like love to them. And God willing, here's what we're believing for. And after first service, I had multiple people come up and say, that's my story. Where they discovered that as they served and loved like Jesus, their, person, their, their spouse saw Jesus in them and came to give their lives to Jesus. That's our hope and prayer. That's what we're believing for. That's the goal. So that's the first question that I get. The second question, can I date someone that doesn't know Jesus so that I can witness to them? No. Next point. There's no biblical precedence for this. 
at dating somebody to try and reach them for Jesus, what I have often found is exactly what Paul says, that they're trying to reach that person and they have hopes and they keep getting more and more involved and closer and closer and soon you have two who are unequally yoked and one will pull the other down. It's called missionary dating. It's not a thing. There's no biblical scripture for this. We're told very clearly by Paul, do not be unequally yoked. The second key to oneness, number two, forgiveness. Marriage, did you know that marriage was not created by God so that you would have a place where perfect happiness and conflict-free living occur? And all the married couples said, yeah. Some of the husbands are like, I'm not falling for it. I'm not taking the bait. Our marriage is perfect, honey. You complete me. (laughs) Marriage wasn't created for an environment where perfect happiness and conflict-free living happen. Marriage was created by God for a deeper purpose. Marriage was created, number one, so that your relationship with your husband or wife would reflect God's glory that the image of God would be displayed. The second reason, an environment where discipleship happens. You see, your spouse knows all the things that everybody else doesn't know. Isn't that terrifying? They know the worst parts of you. And eventually that spouse is going to be like a mirror. That's why some marriages get so angry because they're seeing themselves in the mirror through the reflection of their spouse. And that spouse will reflect a spiritual mirror as they follow Jesus, and it'll irritate you because you recognize, that's me, that's my flaws. And now discipleship can happen, spiritual growth can happen, you can grow closer to Jesus. Marriage was created to reflect the character and image of God. And secondly, marriage was created so that a perfect environment for discipleship and growing closer to Jesus together could also flourish. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Marriage was always meant to show God's image. Throughout scripture, from Psalms to Revelation, there are descriptions of the church being the bride of Christ. How many of you are familiar with scriptures that talk about that? We as a church are are the bride of Christ. Now, I want you to consider this. This is how sacred and special marriage is. The Holy Spirit inspires the writers, meaning the Holy Spirit is telling the writers of the Bible what to write. And out of all of the billions of illustrations that these writers could have been told by the Holy Spirit, hey, I want you to, to use a different illustration. I want you to go this route. The Holy Spirit divinely inspired these writers to say, hey, to describe the perfect relationship between Christ and his church, I want you to use marriage. That's how beautiful and sacred this gift of marriage is, is that it's used as an example to talk about how Christ feels for us as his church. And as image bearers of God, we have to recognize that we've all missed the mark. We are all imperfect people. We are all in need of a Savior. Can I hear an amen? Amen. Therefore, this reality should compel us 
to not only receive forgiveness that we've never deserved, but offer forgiveness that is never deserved. I heard a marriage counselor say one time, often I find before people in marriages fell out of love, they first fell out of repenting and forgiving one another. After years of holding on to a list of wrongs of each other's sins, they eventually focused more on bitterness than they did reconciliation through repentance and forgiveness. Before couples ever fell out of love, they fell out of repentance and forgiving. Just so we're clear, repentance is not saying I'm sorry and doing the same wrong thing over and over and over again. Repentance is saying this, I was wrong. Hit the pause button. I understand that there are some households represented here where you grew up in an environment where your mom and dad, when they did something wrong, those words, I was, ne- or, I was wrong, you never heard those before. That is a wrong way of doing marriage. Repentance is saying, I was wrong for what I did or said. What I did or said was not okay. I'm going to seek Jesus' help to change this, and I'm sorry. Forgiveness is not keeping this moment as an a, a ace in the back pocket and saying, whenever we get mad enough, whenever our disagreement gets to that point, I'm going to pull this out as the ace in my back pocket and lay it down and hold this over your head. Forgiveness is saying this. This is what forgiveness is. I'm not going to punish because Jesus already took the punishment. I'm not going to hold it over your head. I'm going to pray for you and believe that God will help you in this. I forgive you. And the most beautiful thing happens when couples are living this out. Because some of you are here today, and maybe there's been some experiences in your marriage that have been so bumpy that you're sitting here and you're like, that's a fantasy land, pastor. My God takes things that seem like dreams and he makes them into realities. Pursue his way, he'll make it happen. But you and your spouse need to be one in this. Back to what I was going to say, the most beautiful thing happens is the worship team makes their way. Otherwise, we're going to be here till six. When you show your spouse this kind of repentance and forgiveness, you reflect the image of God to a culture that is hell-bent on revenge and bitterness. You show that culture what Jesus died for. And you show a culture how good God's undeserved forgiveness looks like. The three keys to oneness. Number three. We're not going to overthink this here this morning. Number three, friendship. The three keys to oneness with your spouse. Or if you're in a season where you're looking to, to date. Can I challenge you and encourage you? Date and marry your best friend. Our culture is so good at belittling good things. Our culture is so good at desacralizing that which God has called sacred. 
And I remember, like, and if you've heard me say this before, again, please just bear with me because it's just so vivid in my mind. I remember before I was married, mature men in Christ coming up to me and they would, they would tell me right before my wedding, like, they would say, oh, you just wait for it. Hmm, hallelujah. The old ball and chain. This is it. Kiss all the happy times goodbye. And like, I just want, are you okay? And can I just say, like, what I came to discover is those guys were dead wrong and, and trapped in their own bitterness. Because there is nothing as awesome as marriage. Like, aside from serving Jesus, marriage is incredible. And right after that, having kids, which is a result of being married. Like, it's incredible. The adventure to be one, to do life together is absolutely better than what I could have ever prayed for or imagined. And there's this book that talks about the importance of friendship, or at least there's this mention in this book in the Bible. It's from the book of Song of Solomon. And Song of Solomon, someday I'm going to preach on it, but I'm going to have to give a viewer discretion as advised before we get into that series. Because there are some beautiful, intimate moments of Song of Solomon. As a matter of fact, I heard once, I don't know if this is true, but I heard once that there were some Jewish cultures that would not allow boys or children to read the uh, book of Song of Solomon until they were um, 12 or 13 years old because of the mature content. Song of Solomon is a book written about the beautiful union of marriage and the sexual expression of marriage. Throughout this book, there are some passages that I promise if I were to read them from the pulpit here today, you'd blush. And in the midst of this poetical expression, beautifully displaying God's love for us, our love for him, and this represented like in this beautiful, holy state of matrimony, the author, here's how the author expresses love. Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verse 16. His mouth is so sweet, and he is altogether desirable. This is my beloved. This is my friend. Oh, daughters of Jerusalem. And this is her like bragging. You just wish he was yours. She says, this is my beloved. This is my friend. Like the Holy Spirit said, I want you to include, I want you to call and say like, this is my love. This is the one whom I love. But I also, I, the Holy Spirit says like I, to the writer, I, I also don't forget this, that they are also your best friend. Like some, like we, we overcomplicate things sometimes, don't we? And I feel like some here today, like what you are in need of under the, maybe a high intense intense uh, state of your marriage right now, like maybe you're at a point of disagreement, you're just hitting a bumpy road and like, maybe you're like, oh, we need counseling, we need this, we need that, we need this. Can I just simplify it for you? Maybe the number one thing that you need for your husband and wife is a really, really good date night where you simply go out, have fun, and laugh a little bit. Like life gets busy, doesn't it? Please don't, like, somebody, come on. Life gets busy. And if you have one child, 
life is busy. And if you have more than one child, life gets really busy. And like I said in first service, if you're like the gogglers having all these kids, you're insane. Half the kids' ministry is a goggler. Life gets really busy. It's, it's the workflow, it's the house flow, got to keep up with the bills, got to keep up with, again, the housework, and when he's done there, we got to keep up with the kid's school schedule, and, and like, like, Lord have mercy on your life if your child is involved in summer sports. My goodness, they call it summer, but they start in winter and they end in winter. Summer's a lie and a selling point. And it's like going to this sports camp, going to this practice, we have this game on this day, and if you have multiple children in sports, like you're just all over the place, and it's one thing after another, after another, after another, after another, hit the pause button. Take your wife out on a date. Don't forget to enjoy each other. Don't forget to have fun in marriage. Did you know that God is pro-fun? Like when was the last time that you and your spouse just had one of those moments where you could not stop laughing, it, it hurt your stomach, you're crying in your eyes, and probably is because one of your kids did something. Date your spouse. And here's what having a spouse who is a best friend, here's what it does for you. It sets you up for success because someday when those kids grow up, and they're out of the house, and it's just you, your husband, or your wife, if you date them as your kids are growing old, it prevents you from experiencing the heartache of all of that happening. Kids are out, and you saying, I don't know who you are anymore. We became roommates somewhere along the way. Date your spouse. Date your best friend. When you're a best friend, it means that you enjoy one another, you look forward to being with each other, that you have things in common, the same interests, enjoy going out together, enjoy talking, enjoy listening to what the other person has to say. Best friends have fun. Marriage is supposed to be fun. Amen, church? Amen. Would you stand to your feet with me? Just like many households make it a priority to go to work, many households make it a priority to do devotions and pray together, you should also make it a priority to go on dates and have fun with each other. Do all that you can to maintain that best friend status with your spouse. Not only does it add fun to your marriage and life, but it ensures that your kids will see a biblical example of God. And it ensures, again, that someday when your kids are out of the house, that you're left with your best friend. Amen? Amen. Would you bow your heads with me? Dear Heavenly Father, I just ask, Lord, first and foremost, for the couples here who are um, not here today, who are at a weekend, remember the marriage conference is taking place, would you bless them? Bless them, and as they draw near to you, I pray that they would draw near to one. As they become one with you, may they become one with one another. Father, would you just restore what needs restored, or if it's a great marriage on a great path, let it continue. Pray that you would equip them with what they need. Lord Jesus, I pray today for those who are here, God, would you help us to do marriage the right way, your way. Lord, I pray that you would be number one in our lives and that everything would be built upon the foundation of Christ in us. Jesus, may we surrender to you all that we are. Help us to put our faith in you, 
to forgive one another just like your son has forgiven us, that you made a way through your son to forgive us and help us to be best friends with one another so that we can reflect to a broken culture around us what a whole marriage looks like. Father, for those who are here today who are single, I pray that you would lead them in a way where they can date biblically and they can look for these these traits of oneness. For those who are here today and they're either going through or have gone through a divorce, I pray that your loving arms would wrap around them and that they would know that all is not lost, but you're the God who restores and blesses beyond what we could ever imagine and that there is something on the horizon that you've got. You've got a plan. And Lord, for those who are married here today, would you help them to implement these three keys to oneness? In Jesus' precious and holy name, lead us and guide us in your name. And everybody said, and everybody shouted, would you give them some praise before we leave here today? Amen, amen, amen. God bless you as you go with the Lord. He's going with you. We'll see you Wednesday night in our Bible study. God bless you. This has been an audio recording from Crossroads Community Church. If you'd like to get in contact with us or learn more about us, you can follow us on social media at C3Lehigh or email us at info at C3Lehigh.com. We'd love to hear from you.